There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby with Professor Steve Keen. And today, the central banks around the world seem to be colluding. They've all met up in Portugal this week for an annual conference. And now the talk is very much about lifting interest rates, particularly in Canada, the UK, the US at some point, and Europe, despite all those troubles in Greece. So what will that do? I mean, inflation is low in most places, although in the UK it's actually higher than wage growth. So people's income is already going backwards. And of course, the Tory government is limiting most public sector wages to 1% per year, well below inflation. So those public sector workers are really going to feel it. Then the Bank of England is, look, looks like, going to hit them with higher interest rates. So Steve, what's that going to do? What's going to be the impact of all of this, do you think? Oh, God. <laughs> Complete reversal of policy in about two years' time is going to be the impact of all this. It's The level of naivety uh, which uh, is on display here is simply breathtaking. It's professional naivety, not naivety of the public. You normally accuse the uh, the amateurs of not knowing what they're doing and the experts of having a, a clue of a more sophisticated vision of how the system operates. Here's a, kind of classic proof that economists who overwhelmingly staff and manage these central banks haven't got a bloody clue about how the economy actually operates. They're waiting for inflation to raise. I mean, that's why they've been holding back. They've been saying, uh, well, inflation is too low, therefore we can't raise interest rates because we, because we, you know, the whole point of, of interest rates is to try and cool the economy and there's no sign of it heating up till we see this rise in inflation. They're preempting this rise in inflation and now they're using the argument that inflation will follow. There's enough strength in the economy that we are going to see inflation happen and by the time that happens, it, you know, it'll be too late if we haven't already started to raise interest rates. Yeah, and this is uh, the lesson they haven't learned from Japan, which has been doing this, same, this little uh, interest rates up, inflation down game now for going on a quarter of a century. And it, it's 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 <laughs> when I wrote Debunking Economics back, I started writing back in 1999, uh, I included in it the phrase that I think we're going to turn Japanese globally because economists uh, do not understand how money is created, do not understand the dynamics of a, the, the, the role of credit ex- causing expansions and collapses, don't even perceive the importance of debt. Uh, every, and the, the little economy economic models tell them that uh, when there's a decline in the unemployment rate, that's going to cause inflation to rise, that the interest rates have to rise to control that, and they don't see anything about the impact of the level of debt that they've allowed accumulating in the process. So what then happens is when they put the interest rates up, that means people who've gone back into borrowing money once more, so credit's rising, uh, will suddenly decide, decide they don't want to take out that additional uh, debt, and when they don't take out the additional debt, the demand from credit evaporates, you fall back into a slump again. And Japan's been doing this for 25 years now. Right. And yet, I mean, obviously, the reason why uh, that level of debt rose in part is because uh, interest rates have been so low. No, we're talking back during the 1980s. Mm. 
Wednesday rates are actually quite high. The, 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 the growth, and this is the, the, the classic experience of this, is actually the UK's, and that's probably the most remarkable chart for me in my new, my most recent book, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis, was the chart showing the level of private debt to GDP in the UK from 1880 to today. And from 1880 to 1980, the whole century, it had no obvious trend and it never exceeded 72% of GDP from 1982 until 2010, it went from 55% of GDP to 195% of GDP. And that incredible increase in credit occurred because we had both a deregulated financial sector, encouraged to lend money, and the whole the whole sort of belief that the world that you when you liberate when you remove regulations you uh, you free up capitalism and bang you get growth. What you got instead was growth in credit. Uh, that occurred. That caused a huge boom and then a collapse and then another boom with deflation becoming the rule from 1980 for about 1990 on. Uh, and now we've ended up where, where we are now. Interest rates were almost an irrelevant, not, not irrelevant control, but had far less control because the people who thought they were fine-tuning it had models in which there was no role for credit and no role for debt. And They've been through a financial crisis caused by too much debt. They still don't realize that's what actually caused it. And now they think they can just fine-tune these rates, these flow rates they have in their DSGE models um, because all the flow variables they look are back to the levels that they think are sustainable. But the stock variable they ignore, which is the level of private debt, is far higher than it was uh, back in 1980, let alone back in the 1950s and 60s. So when they put these interest rates up, they're going to cause the, the, the credit flow that they're ignoring. They, again, they don't even take this into account in their models. That credit flow is going to disappear. The demand will fall over. The economy will go back into a slump again, and they'll be forced to reverse direction. Right, and they're not giving themselves a lot of wriggle room, are they? Because if they raise interest rates by, say, a quarter of a percent, and it has a, a, an impact, mm. or, or half a percent or whatever, and they want to uh, backtrack on that, I mean, they haven't got far to go, have they? It's trivial. Like, again, the, if you wonder, why are they doing this? Why do they think controlling interest rates, varying interest rates, is going to have uh, effect to control the overall economy? It's because the core model they've got has the rate of investment depending upon the rate of interest, in the sense that if you put the rate of interest up, you increase the discount rate, that firms are supposed to apply to what they think is their future cash flow. And so with the higher interest rate, there therefore be a lower level of investment, which will reduce the rate of growth of the economy and let you fine-tune it to get that, that target uh, that they're aiming for, which you know, I, I talk about having a 2-3-4 rule. Yep. They have a, a target rate of inflation of 2%, real growth of 3%, and the interest rate of 4%. Those are the three magic numbers that dominate their models. Now, they're not going to – those two, three, four numbers are a, are a myth. Because let's go back to the investment thing. Is it true that the rate of interest is the main determinant of a firm's willingness to invest? Not in the real world. What's the real determinative level of investment is your expectations of future profit. Yeah. Now, is, is, someone, are, is someone going to yeah. buy what you're investing to make? Yeah, and if you if you're if 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 that that then depends upon the demand you're seeing. Now the demand itself has two components. It's the turnover of existing money plus credit. Now, if you have an increase in interest rates, which mean that people are looking at the debt burden they're carrying now, which is huge compared to what it was back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, that huge debt burden, that small increase in interest rates can mean the that you, the servicing cost on the debt you currently have goes up substantially. You look at that and you decide either not to invest, 
not, not, to, not to continue borrowing money, so your credit growth terminates, or you can't service the debt you currently have, so you, go, you, you fold to go bankrupt and take demand out of the economy that way, the credit demand will plunge from positive to negative very rapidly. Mm. And when it does, you know, suddenly the signals that were making you decide to invest disappear. So it, it can look like a small increase in interest rate had an outsized impact on the level of investment because in their model, it's just interest rate, uh, future earnings, no role for credit whatsoever. And, and, uh, and, and therefore, the, well, their puzzle, and you'll see academic papers published on this in the next few years, why does the interest rate have such a bigger impact now on investment than it had back in the 1950s and 60s? What a strange puzzle. It's not a strange puzzle. You're bloody well ignoring the main factor, which is the level of debt. debt. Yeah. And All therefore, the- those changes have dramatic impact. And here's the irony, because they are recognising, uh, you know, that there is an asset bubble. Uh, it's part of the reason why they've, you know, there's been some uh, hesitancy on the part of central banks to raise interest rates is there is this recognition that it could have an impact on uh, house prices in, in particular, that people might be unable to pay their mortgages um but that's only half the yeah, story but they've also they've caused the bubble they're complaining yeah. about yeah, yeah. i mean I, I just look at this stuff and i it, i mean that's why i got so angry in the article i wrote on janet yellen yesterday because uh, she clearly doesn't have a bloody clue let's i'm just you know she 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 understands a model of the economy which is wrong she does not understand the economy at all and she 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 read the she i mean one thing i knew about yellen which made her different to bernanke uh, is that she paid some attention to hyman minsky of course, is the person whose approach to economics has really coalesced the the approach that I that I take. I see myself as developing his ideas and enriching in various ways, but certainly standing on his shoulders. Now, Bernanke, in his essays on the Great Depression, which was his job application for chairman of the Federal Reserve, he devoted, as I think I've mentioned before in the, in the podcast and certainly in my book, he devoted 48 words to Minsky. And those 48 words included that Hyman Minsky and Charles Kinderberger have on various occasions argued for the instability of the economic system, but in doing so have had to depart from the assumption of rationality. Footnote adds, I don't doubt the importance of rationality, irrationality in the real life, but I think the best research postulate is to push the, ir- the rationality uh, argument as far as it will go. End of can I use a real French word here? Of end of fucking story. Okay, <laughs> end of fucking story. That's all he bloody well said. That was the end of consideration of Minsky. Now, Janet uh, was invited to speak at the Levy Institute uh, in upstate New York. And the Levy Institute, a bit of a long story here, uh, Jerome Levy was an engineer whose father owned a textile business. And so back in the 1920s or thereabouts. And he applied mathematics of engineering, uh, which pretty much second order uh, damped oscillation models, to looking at the, the, price, the past price dynamics he'd seen for purchases of textiles and then the market itself. And he worked out there was a sort of a damped oscillation going on there. So when the there was a boom going on in the price for, for a textiles, textile merchants come around to say, oh, you know, how much do you want to buy? Jerome Levy's answer is nothing. Zero. They're saying, but look, the price is rising like crazy. If you don't buy now, it's going to cost you more in the future. He says, zero. Price crashes. All his, uh, his, his competitors go bankrupt, not all, but a substantial number. He then buys them up and, and becomes a billionaire. Yeah. And then in that process, he, has, he, he realized the mathematics of Mikhail Koleski, who's a Polish economist who's seen as having done a lot of the work that, that Keynes did before Keynes did it, and again, using engineering ideas from his time as an engineer in Poland. Uh, and so the Jerome Levy Institute becomes part of 
tied up with Koleski, which also influences Minsky, which means in Minsky's final years, he was actually sitting in office in the Jerome Levy Institute in Bard College in upstate New York. Long, long story. I, I then worked, I wrote uh, a large part of debunking economics in Minsky's office. Minsky died in 96. I was there from 99 for six months during my sabbatical leave. Anyway, Janet Yellen spoke, I think in 1996 it may have been, the last year of Minsky's life at the Bard College. She didn't have a clue about Minsky clearly at the time she wrote. She was extolling the virtues of, of CDOs as a way of reducing risk in the financial sector. But she came back in 2009 and gave a talk to the Hyman Minsky, whichever it may be, maybe I'm guessing it was about conference number 19 in the series of Hyman Minsky conferences named after Hyman Minsky at that centre. And she read him well. The amount of attention she played was zero. And so she comes out yesterday, when it was the day before yesterday, um, when we were recording this podcast, um, in London and says she doesn't think there will be another financial crisis in her lifetime. Mm. And by in her lifetime, she meant the lifetime of the audience she was speaking to. So 40, 50 years worth. She I was going to say, perhaps she's very ill. That's the only way. The only, there's only two ways you can actually rationalise her, her comment. Either she's going to die tomorrow mm. and therefore there won't be a financial crisis in her life, uh, or... She hasn't got a damn clue, and she thinks it's all due to exogenous shocks, and we've had a big exogenous shock back in 2009, so the odds of another exogenous shock of that scale are so low that they won't occur for 50 or 100 years, like a you know a 50 or 100-year flood, and therefore we're all safe to ignore the possibility of one in the future. Right. So, so People what, like that yeah. are making decisions about economic policy. So the, And the fact that uh, you know we have this, this collusion going on, Canada, the UK, the US, Europe, mm-hmm. um, interestingly, not much word from Australia, but central banks tend to be all saying now, well, let's all do it soon. Let's all raise our interest rates rather than, you know, uh, yeah. uh, because they're all together in, in, in Portugal. <laughs> obviously, they got drunk and thought this is a good idea. But, I mean, is there is there a story in that? Why are they all doing it now? Is it because they fear that... Uh, yeah, the the flow of money of one of them does it and the other one doesn't, or it's because they, it's it's groupthink, right? They all they all have they're all mainstream economists. They've all got PhDs and DSG models of the economy, uh, and they're all looking at the same uh, way of modelling the economy, which happens to leave out the role of credit and leave out uncertainty, uh, two minor aspects of the real world, and therefore these the signals they're seeing they're all going in the same direction. So thank God we're through the crisis. Let's start putting rates up. The only only reason I can give a positive for them and putting rates up at the same time is because they've finally realised there is a carry trade. So if there's a big gap between interest rates in one country to another, uh, there'll be uh, the Mrs. Watanabe effect, I think it's called. Yep. Uh, people will transfer money across to their country with a higher interest rate and make a double gain or capital gain as well as because of rising appreciating currency. Uh, plus also they get a higher rate of interest. So they're by, by coordinating, they're trying to cut out the Mrs. Watanabe effect. And on that basis, I'd give them seven out of 100. <laughs> that much. Uh, so, so look, we've spoken before about Canada um, because they are carrying so much debt. Uh, so what's the impact for them of raising interest rates? Because Canada is amongst those, uh, those, those central banks that are talking about it. Okay, well, Canada is going to pay for that because Canada is on the verge of a financial crisis courtesy of the debt bubble that it uh, got through the 2008 crisis, where it's one of my prime candidates for a crisis. So when the Central Bank of Canada puts up rates, it'll probably be the first one to cause a recession in its own economy. Right. But the others will follow. So step by step, I mean, that, that, so, I mean clearly pushing up interest rates is is going to make it very hard for those people who are have, have borrowed too much money to pay their mortgages on their homes and their investment properties uh, and uh, and people are going to stop 
uh, people are going to stop borrowing as well because the interest rates have gone up. So that's in effect pulling, sucking money out of the economy in both directions, isn't it? Yeah, and this is the this is the real hole because credit demand will go from positive to negative in the in the in response to an increase in interest rates, given the level of debt we've got right now, private debt then demand will suddenly vary dramatically and they'll spend all the time trying to decide why was there such a sudden slump in investment uh, because they're ignoring a major source of demand, which is credit. So credit is rising in the UK, it's rising in America, it's still positive in Canada, that's going to turn negative regardless of what central banks do there. Uh, but the, that, that, that factor is what they're relying upon. They don't actually, they're not even aware that that's what's causing the increase in growth they're talking about. And how much They're is it going to snuff that and, out? And how much putting is, up rates? Right. And how much is it going to? How much of an interest rate is is it going to take to have a profound effect? Because I mean, they're talking. Obviously, they're talking about a quarter of a percent rise normally, aren't they? With with most of the uh, yeah. most of the changes they make, is that going to be enough to to start to uh, start this top? No, effect? no, not not a quarter of a percent. But certainly, by when you get to the stage of about a one percent rise, then that's going to be sufficient. And what this remember, their target is to get back to a, a rate of interest. Of, uh, of about 4%. Percent, yeah. That's what they think it should be. Uh, they're not going to get anywhere near that before they're forced to reverse direction again. So they're currently, you, you, you're probably talking about, a like in the interim target's going to be 1.5%. I think by the time they get to 2, if they get that far, uh, they'll be talking about having to cut rates once more to stimulate a country which has inexplicably fallen into a slump once more. The whole world is turning into Japan, basically. Uh- <laughs> There's a song there, isn't there? I'm sure. There is indeed. Finish (laughs) off with it. Yeah, why the hell not? 1% GDP growth. Wow, the 28th highest GDP per capita in the world. Is that really where we're all heading? That's where Japan is right now. That's it for this free edition of the Debunking Economics podcast. To hear more, support Steve Keen on patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen. If you commit to $10 or more per month, you get access to all the existing podcasts, all 50 of them, plus the new ones, one or two each week. Or you can subscribe at debunkingeconomics.com on the website. Choose a plan from the right-hand side. I'm Phil Dobby. Till next time, thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.